this morning, uh, as I was well, as I was putting together the uh, sermon, we're in Ezekiel 16 again. Um, I'm just letting you know that uh, the the things that I that I that came out of the text that I wanted to share with you tended to uh, kind of move back and forth and 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 kind of weave together in, in different and unexpected times. All of that to say uh, that I'm not going to have the the scrolling verse to verse bit during the sermon this morning because um, because I just I was constantly unhappy with kind of how things were um, how I was setting things and so I just said you know what. I'm just going to, to preach it and point to it as we go. Uh, and so um, while, it, while I would generally despise telling you to take out your phones during a sermon, uh, you can use, uh, you can use the, you know, the Bible app on your phone or you've got a Bible right in front of you, a uh, bit of a different translation from what I'll be preaching from, but that's, uh, that's all right. It will be up here just for the scripture reading, uh, but then during the sermon I'll just be pointing to it at, at, at different times uh, in the text. And so... Uh, so we're in uh, Ezekiel chapter 16, and beginning at verse 15, after the Lord has given this, perhaps you recall from last week, uh, the name of the sermon was that the, the orphan who becomes a queen, all this, this, uh, these gifts that the Lord had poured out uh, on Israel, on Jerusalem, which was cast in the story of this orphan being rescued from death and made a queen, then we pick it up at verse 15, but you trusted in your beauty. And played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines. And on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men. And with them played the whore. You took your embroidered garments to cover them, and embroidered, sorry, and you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you. I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey you set before them for a pleasing aroma. So it was, declares the Lord God, the Lord Yahweh. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you'd born to me. And these you sacrificed to them to be devoured were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them. And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. This is the word of the Lord. And so we say, thanks be to God. So, this is uh, this, actually Ezekiel chapter 16 was once cited by Charles Spurgeon as one of the most difficult texts to preach because you couldn't read it in public without turning red. And so, if you recall from last week where we are in this dramatic parable, what has Israel done? One, she's been loved by God. She's been loved by God. Brought out of death, brought out of abandonment and being discarded and being given everything. If you remember from, uh, from, from last Sunday... Um, in verse 9, uh, this, this, uh, this woman who's representative of Jerusalem is washed with water, anointed with oil, clothed with embroidered cloth, shod with fine leather, wrapped in fine linen, covered with silk, so ornaments, bracelets, all of these, all of these blessings, blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And there's this shift in the parable. 
What did she do? Israel, Jerusalem, God's people did three things. One, they trusted, she trusted in her beauty. It's verse 15. Used her gifts for idolatry. That's most of the rest of the passage. And then at the very end, I believe verse 22. Yeah, verse 22. Did not remember, forgot the days of her youth. So we're going to talk about those three things this morning. Because when God speaks to His people, although He speaks to His people in the Scriptures in a particular time, there's what we call the original audience of of any given text of Scripture. At the same time, the Lord is also speaking to His people in every age with something for them to know, understand, and exult in. Or, as as, as the case may be, to, to take seriously, to sober them, to steady them, to convict us of sin. So what do we see in verse 15? But you trusted in your beauty. You see, the problem is not that Israel was made beautiful. Because God is in the business of recognizing beauty and calling it good, right? That's what happened in the first chapters of Genesis. God makes a beautiful world, calls it good. Creates man and woman, calls it very good. And so so God has encompassed in that idea of goodness is also truth, and beauty, right? And, and I think a lot of us in the church, if I say there is only one, one truth, I mean, it's, something's either true or it's not. Everybody would say amen, right? There's goodness. It's objective. Something's either good or it's not. Everybody says amen. Then if I were to say there's beauty and something's either objectively beautiful or not, we hesitate on that one just a little. We hesitate on that one just a little because we haven't, cause, well, because we don't know our Bibles. But what, what I'm getting at there is, and this is maybe a whole other sermon, but if, if, you, if, if you say, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, what you are referencing is part of the Genesis 3 curse. It's not good news. You see, God has given beauty to the world. And you either recognize that, what God calls very good, or you fail to recognize it. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a range of opinion in there. Maybe a word for that would be pretty. So there's beauty and there's pretty. I'm not sure I would, you know, I'm not sure I would bank everything on that distinction. But I'm trying to make room for the fact that there are opinions, there are things we like and don't like. That's not the same as beauty. You see, because what happened in the fall, if you, re- if you recall that moment in Genesis 3 in the fall, what is the, the first thing that happens after they disobey God and eat the fruit, they realize that they're naked and they hide from each other. Why? Because now beauty's in the eye of the beholder. You see, when, when God made Adam and Eve, He said, very good, right? They are objectively God's creation made in His image, beautiful. But what happened when they ate the fruit? Well, now you get to decide what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, what is truth or lie, what is beautiful or not. And when man and woman are given that task, it crushes them because now suddenly you might not think that the beauty that God put in me is worth recognizing. So we hide from each other because we we don't actually believe God when He says what is good. And so, yes, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That's why they hide. Because the beholder might think I'm not beautiful. Right? So it's not so to say beauty's in the eye of the beholder is not good news. God puts beauty on his people. What's the problem though? Verse 15. You trusted in your beauty. You trusted in it. And so God is in the business of making 
things beautiful and, and, and making us beautiful, by the way. I mean, this is the God who brings life out of death, who gives, what's the terminology, beauty for ashes. He gives community for forsakenness. The problem then is not the gifts of God. The problem is we, we put our trust in them. God tells His people in this text that they trust in their beauty. And then He tells them what it means. What does it mean to trust in beauty? He says, you took this beauty that I gave you. And the word He uses is actually whoring. He basically says, you used it to attract the love of the world and false gods and idols. Now be amazed for a moment that, that God has the audacity, Almighty God has the audacity seeming to portray Himself as the betrayed lover. He says, you lavished your whorings on any passerby. Do you remember last Sunday we talked about the forgotten orphan becoming the queen? That He says to her in verse 6, when I passed by and I saw you. Right? And now anyone, any God who passes by, you give your love and affection to. And he said, I found you. I cleaned you up. I made you mine. And now you go chasing after anything that passes by. Anything that catches your eye. And then he proceeds to, to list it all out. That's verses about 16 to, to 19. I mean, and, and, and all, all sorts of things, right? We read in verse 16, you, you take some of your clothes and you give them to idols. Uh, you take your beautiful jewels, gold, and silver. Again, make for yourself. Use the things I've given you to make images of men. Take your embroidered garments and, and oil and incense and set it before the idols. More on that in just a moment. Rarely, by the way, do we get such a clear picture of what idolatry and false worship in the Old Testament looked like. I mean, this is a pretty clear and detailed picture of what's happening with the idols. But remember, all this stuff listed here is from earlier in the passage. The clothes that he's talking about, and the gold and silver, and the oil, and the bread, and the flour, and the honey, and all that stuff is the stuff in the previous passage that we looked at last Sunday. And he's saying, you took all of these gifts that I gave you and used them for your idolatry. Everything in the list is a callback to something the Lord had given. This is, like, this is like a husband buying his wife a beautiful new dress and she uses it to go find a new boyfriend and says, husband, what husband? And God, has, God uses that language of our idolatry, saints. What's really interesting about it is that such betrayal and scandal kindles shock and anger in our hearts, right? When, when you hear us about a story like that, you know, you read about maybe a story like that in the paper of, of be, just betrayal and, and awful uh, uh, adultery and things like that. You're, in your mind, you just, you get angry. We get angry at stories about people who destroy their marriages, for example, by cheating. There are movies where the, you know, the, the you have the unrepentant, shameless cheater or the unrepentant, shameless abuser and they finally get what's coming to them, right? And you watch a movie like that and at the end you're like, yeah, let them have it. Do you see why God would then dare to use this image? Because even as godless as our wider culture is, most people still get really angry when the innocent are wounded by unrepentant betrayal. God says to Israel, to Jerusalem, to Ezekiel's people, and to us. 
Do you finally see what your reaction to sin and idolatry should be? When you chase after your idols because you find me boring. You take all that I've given you so you can spend it on your lust. And so you see, what this gives us is a kind of window into what possessions can do to us. And so, by the way, maybe you're familiar with the passage where where Jesus says that you can only serve God or or mammon, right? You can't have two masters, God or or mammon. Sometimes mammon is just translated money. It's really not, I mean, that's that's part of it. But mammon is just, um, mammon is is my, my possessions and the things of this world that tempt me to trust in them. Right? That, that's, that's, what, that's the heart of mammon, the, the temptation to trust, which certainly money is. Money tempts us to trust it, to, to put it that way. But so do, the, so do the other things you have. You're always being tempted to trust in the stuff you have, to see all that you have in this world either as a bargaining chip or a wall of safety. That's what mammon is. The stuff that you use to try to go out and fight death. So, I mean, I... I was, I was reflecting this week, what, what would be examples of this? What, what, are the, what are the things that God gives us then and that we take them and say, you know, sort of thank you very much, I'm now going to go spend this on my idols, on my sin. I mean, and, and, and you notice, it's, it's really remarkable. All, all the things that God lists are things that we can connect to either stuff we need, I mean, for goodness sake, clothes and food, but it's also connected to their worship. And so, like, God gives us piety. I mean, there are Christians who have been, like, following God faithfully for years. And as a result, they, they've, they've built up, as it were, just over time, by the, by the kindness of God, they've built up a kind of just piety and love for Jesus and love for, and love for people, right? And sometimes what can happen is they, they just get bored, with the same old Bible stuff over and over and over again. So we got to go out and find some new, some, something new, some new kind of false teaching. Or, or he gives us wisdom, intellect, right? In, in, intelligence, a, a ability to learn deep things. And what do we use it for? Snark. Looking down on people who don't know as much as we do. He gives us information and, and entertainment, right? These things that fit in our pockets that give us all the answers we could ever want. And you, you know, by, by answers, I just mean information, right? If you want to know how to think about technology like this, like this thing in your pocket that attaches itself to your face and doesn't let you breathe, that's a different sermon. But how do we think about technology? Because sometimes when you read the Bible, you're like, man, the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about like cell phones, computers, TVs. What do we do with it? What, what's this? The answer is, there, there are two ways to view this. I think I borrowed this from, from Doug Wilson, I think. Uh, he says, two, two, two ways to view this thing. One, wealth, right? It's wealth. So like, you, you have a wealth of, of access, of information, of communication. It's, it's a gift of wealth. Number two, Servants, right? It's like having servants. So you're, you're sitting in your living room and you say, Google, go and fetch me the answer to this question. And the servant runs out of your house to go find the answer and then comes running back and brings you the answer, right? So servants might be another way to think of, of this, right? So, so that makes you royalty because you've got servants in your house, right? 
That this is the amount of blessing and access to information and wealth that you have. So see it as wealth because the Bible has a lot to say about wealth. That's what your technology is. And so what do we use it for? For our lust. Or just our, our laziness, just kind of mindlessness. Right? Or He gives us a church. He gives us, God, he gives us people. He gives us community and we ignore it. He gives us gathered worship and... I just don't want to, right? It is interesting that in verses 18 and 19, you have some uh, specifically identified elements here. You got oil, incense, bread, fine flour, all of which were used in Old Testament worship in the tabernacle and in the temple. You see part of what's going on there? You, You took the outward stuff of your worship that I gave you, by the way, and you used it for your idolatry. You used my clothing to dress up your idols. Maybe a way to think about it. God gives us a church and we turn it into a club. Lord have mercy. Right? Now, uh, to be sort of historically fair, kind of, kind of balanced in how we think about this, Christianity has always struggled with this in one degree or another for as long as there have been Christians. What I mean is that wherever Christianity shows up in the midst of a culture, right? missionaries bring the gospel to a culture, Christianity tends to struggle as it goes to war with the vices and sins of the culture. So Christianity comes to the Greeks, right? And the Greeks were all about philosophy and wisdom. So a lot of early Christianity is what? Like a hundred foot deep philosophy textbook. Right? It kind of feels that way sometimes when you read parts of it. Why? Well, that makes sense. That's the culture it's moving into. And sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, that's the impact that uh, you can see in kind of Greek Christianity. Then it came to the Romans, right? What were the Romans about? Strength and power. So a lot of Roman Christianity ends up being about status and imperial glory. But what happens when it comes to the West? When it comes into the culture and clashes with the idols in varying degrees and with varying successes because you're dealing with sinners... And so they're tempted to blend rather than to oppose. In our case, I see an American culture obsessed with consumerism and being a customer. And so the church becomes a customer service option. It becomes a place where people are sold religious goods and services. And so you come to church to see if your consumeristic, individualistic desires are being properly met. So I I want preaching that I like. I want music that I like. I want programs and activities that I like. And it's the church's job to build their work around me, the consumer. And if I don't like the product you're selling, I'll go to your competitor down the street or I'll just show up for the stuff I like. And that makes me feel recognized as a customer. If you want to know why the church is dying in America, that's why. It was never meant to function as a business entity. I remember hearing a, a past, when I was in college, I remember hearing a pastor tell a story about a guy who came to his church and was there for like a few months and then requested an appointment with him and sat down and he just said, Pastor, I want you to know we're leaving. I said, oh, sorry to hear that. I mean, can you tell me why? Why it is you're leaving? And the guy said, he said, I'm leaving because, you know, every church we've been in has had like a board of directors and I really want to be chairman of the board and you don't have one. And the pastor said, my... <laughs> <laughs> love you, have, have a nice day. Like, uh, but, I, but here's my point. I'd be willing to bet that very few of you, and I'm talking members, 
in good standing in Grace Presbyterian Church. Very few of you feel perfectly at home here in terms of the preaching or the programs or the music. Very few of you feel like perfectly at home. That's sort of the point. <laughs> like part of this whole love one another thing, bear with one another thing, be with one another thing, encourage one another thing, you know, it's, it's, it's part, of the, part of the bearing with and learning how to do this together. Some of you, by the way, a little bit side note, some of you have asked about small groups and we are going to be looking toward, kind of, kind of moving toward that because it's just, it's harder to do really meaningful fellowship in this context. Like even if, you, even if you're one who like stays after and chills and talks to people and that kind of, and that's great, like love it when people do that. Not, not everybody does, not everybody can for whatever reason. And so to, to expect us to squeeze out of this time all the possibilities that the Lord has for us for fellowship, I, I don't think is reasonable. And so we're, we're, we're moving in this direction of talking about how to do small groups, and it's something we're still kind of thinking and dreaming about. That survey that y'all did a while back is going to help us to that end. Back, sorry, back to Ezekiel. God gives this list, right, saying, these are the things I gave you. These are the things I gave you as your husband, and you use them to attract other lovers. And then seemingly, seemingly a bit of a turn, verses 20 and 21 You took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me. These you sacrificed to them, that is the idols, to be devoured. Yeah. Speaking of the the slaughter of children and child sacrifice. So it's interesting. You might be familiar with the Old Testament term Baal or sometimes pronounced Baal and Baal worship or Baal worship in the Old Testament. In Hebrew, Baal has two meanings. One is Lord or Master. And the other... Is husband. Right? And so whenever you see Baal in, in, in the Old Testament, that's kind of what's behind that. It's this concept of Lord, but also this concept of husband. And the Old Testament mentions Molech, who is this God who demands child sacrifice so that all will go well with you. Right? It's not hard to connect that to a lot of the, the principle, the idea behind modern-day abortion that says this child is, is what stands between me and all that I should have or, or believe that I deserve. And so because of that, I'm going to take this gift that the Lord has given me and throw it away. And so this, but this is interesting. Isn't it interesting? I just note in passing that, that children are given in this list of things the Lord has given. And so... Parents, your, your children are given to you as a stewardship to love well and point them to Jesus and by your own love of Jesus, you know, giving them things to imitate, by, by your own use of the gifts God has given you in your home as, as stewards. When, because in reality, what, what we are meant to do as God's people is take what He's given us and use it in order to love our neighbor and to make visible our love of God. In other words, it's given to us to take what God has given us and use it to show others that God is worth more than what God has given us. God has given you all that you have so that you might show the world that He is worth more than all that you have. That's the reason you have stuff. Everything, and so so here's another way to put it. Everything God has given you, you spend, even if it's not money. Okay, Everything God has given you, you spend, you use. 
How do you spend it? On what do you spend? And I'm not just talking about money. Everything that's yours, okay? Your house, your car, your, your money, yes. Your technology, your retirement, your time, your relationships, your marriage, your friends, your coworkers, your enemies, your rest, your leisure. The times when you are alone with your thoughts, maybe. Your weekends. All of these things are, in some sense, things that you spend. I wonder if you can think about them that way. And so God blesses you. He blesses you. Why? So you can spend it on your lust? No. God gives you treasures so that you can show the world that He's worth more than the treasures. So why is it so easy for your heart and mind to start trusting in our beauty? Unfortunately, I forgot to write down the text, but there's a bit in, in Deuteronomy where the Lord tells them all that they're, the, the, the blessing He means to bring them. And then He says, but be careful. Don't forget me or else you're going to wake up one morning and say, look at all that I have obtained by my own strength and my own cunning and my own wisdom. Right? So why is it that our, it's, it's so easy for our hearts to trust in our beauty and all that God has given us? The answer is in verse 22. In all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. That's from the earlier part of chapter 16. That's the reason why we're tempted to trust in what God has given us, because we forget what God has done for us. Forget our youth is the language that that God uses with Ezekiel. Spiritually speaking, we forget what God has done. We just forget. Just, I mean, it was just yesterday. Um, Marissa and I both, both realized it was just... <laughs> we, uh, sorry, I kind of have to tiptoe around details here. But, but it was, we, we, had, we had been somewhere where there were lots of people who were sick. And we kind of left that place like, oh boy, oh geez. It was just months ago. And, you know, you know it's just, you see everybody's kind of hawking and hacking and coughing and whatnot. And you're, okay. And then we realized, like, we never thank God that we walked out of there perfectly fine. <laughs> we, like, worried about it, we're anxious about it, but didn't, didn't lift up our thanks. Like, thank you, God, for your protection. Uh, and so the, uh, these kinds of moments that you have, take them and be thankful. That's one thing. But, but spiritually speaking, we just forget what God has done. Over time, the temptation is you begin to think all that you have is all that you deserve and all that is yours by right. This is in part... I think it's in part sometimes because uh, Christians in our context can be especially prone to always wanting to go back in time. What I mean is that it tends to be the case, especially if you did not grow up in a Christian home and you had a, a radical conversion experience, that probably, I'm willing to bet, that early Christian life for you was really exciting and really thrilling. And a lot of passionate experiences are bound up in your conversion. Then as those fade, which tends to happen, and it tends to be that God calls you to, to grow into something more steady and, and deeper, more rooted and more permanent, often more ordinary. And, and the temptation then is to like despise that and to keep chasing after the next thing that's going to bring you back in time 20 years. Okay? It's because you're like trying to get back. And, and, and sometimes I think motivations there are good. Sometimes I wonder if, if it's just 
God, gave, God just flooded you with those things as a gift to you in the early years after conversion, like a kid going to Chuck E. Cheese and just rah, all the sensory overload, right? And, and, now, and now he's calling you to, to, to grow up to something more rooted and steady. And the temptation is to, to despise that. And so how do, how do we fight this? How do we fight this? Because this, we get this word, you, you forgot. Verse 22 again, right? You did not remember the days of your youth, all right? So how then? That, that sounds to me like we want to sit up and pay attention and be like, okay, I don't want to forget. I don't want to forget all that God has done. First thing, easy thing, just be thankful. I mean, look around for stuff to be thankful for. And so, <laughs> like, if you're, I don't know, maybe if you're moving right now and your house is full of boxes and... It sometimes get a little frustrating, and you just got to be like, thank you, Lord. Look at all this stuff. This is ridiculous. <laughs> it's all in boxes, and it feels kind of crammed and tight in here, but that's fine. Like, it's, it's ridiculous, embarrassing amounts of blessing. <laughs> How then do we remember his goodness to us? Well, I just, if you'll pardon me being a little bit kind of snarky, like, man, if only God had given something to make sure we remember and don't forget, yeah? If only he had given us something to say, take this day, don't forget, right? Don't forget how important this is. Don't forget how important it is to assemble together. If only Jesus had given us a way to refresh our hearts and souls and minds in remembrance of him so that we never forget his broken body and his shed blood for us. That'd be cool, wouldn't it? This is how we fight. The table's how we fight. By delighting in God's gifts. That's the short answer. By receiving the joy and the relief that comes from the words take and eat, take and drink. Does that sound like a work to you? Receive the relief of God? We, we remember by resting, by resting in His words, by resting in His promises, by lifting up our gratitude to Him in prayer. Even in moments when to pray means to start off with how long, O Lord. Right? E- even in those moments, we're lifting up our, our gratitude. So thank God at all times for all things. Reflect what God has, has done for you. See the wealth before you. The temptations to mammon that are in front of you and the device in your pocket that that at all times of the day and night calls you to trust in mammon? Rejoice at what he's kept you from. Man, that'd be a fun thing to just write out. What's all the stuff the Lord has kept you from in mercy? Rejoice where you've been forgiven. So he calls us in. He brings us to his table. And he says, I know you're forgetful. I know you're forgetful. That's why we gather in here to remember the story of our own fall into sin, our own deliverance from death, so that we can sing hallelujahs for our strength and hope and grace and peace for the next you know, six or seven days until we need to do it again. And then we come to this table where Jesus feeds us and he says, don't forget, broken for you, shed for you. And in response we say, hallelujah. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our Father, 
we, we, we confess that we are abundantly blessed and that it is always our perennial temptation to, to, to give in to the promises of mammon and to trust in it, to, to put our trust there, to put our trust in the beauty that you've given us and use it to chase after our idols. And instead, Lord, we pray that you would, that you would call us back to yourself, that we, would, that we would come to your table and take and eat and drink and receive, be refreshed. For just as you are the God who has, as, as it were, wedded himself to us, the church, even as we wait for the final day when we will sit down and celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. As we wait and confess, even so, come Lord Jesus. We pray that you would steady our hearts and fit us for faithful service in this world. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we ask it. Amen.